Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And we have been spending a lot of time together. <laughs> oh my God. When I, I don't know what button I pushed on my phone today and it called up like, here are the things you usually do with your phone, Jack. And the options were the New York Times crossword puzzle, um, email Jennifer, uh, and there was like one other, let's see, oh, Gmail and Twitter and Outlook. It was like work, um, you know, like hoping for a non-work related email, crossword, and Jennifer. That's my life right now. Well, that doesn't sound so bad. <laughs> well, the reason oh, we've been spending so is. much, oh, I'm I'm just going to erase that. <laughs> the reason we've been spending so much time together is that we have been promoting our brand new book, A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, and we've been, you know, talking to people about it and also doing these very cool virtual book clubs. And that's where a group of people in a city or a state get together, they read the book, and then we stop by and chat with them. And it's been absolutely great. But it does mean that Jack and I spend an enormous amount of time looking at each other on Zoom or Google Meet. I actually, I uh, just hide your camera uh, these days, Jennifer. Sorry. <laughs> well, when we're not doing book groups for A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, I really think that my life has become a book club of one. That all really, <laughs> only, only when the books you suggest are over a thousand pages long, Jennifer. <laughs> oh, that's your Moby Dick book club. Well, I that's pretty much, you know, I I'm reading all the time now and I'm either trying to convince Jack that we should do an episode about a book, I'm tweeting enthusiastically about a book. And so when the time arrives that I actually get to talk about it, I'm really excited. <laughs> uh I don't I I'm so happy that you're excited, Jennifer. I'm here for you. As well, as always these days. Well, our episode today stars a writer that I am so thrilled to have on. I have been a huge fan of his for years. His name is Rick Perlstein, and he is the author of a whole series of, of really monumental books. And I, I don't say this lightly. The one we're going to be talking about is Reaganland, about America's turn to the right during the Reagan years. But before that, there was Nixonland. He wrote a great book about Goldwater. And um, Reaganland wraps up his series. So I don't know what Rick's going to be doing next, but he really, I feel like he has chronicled uh, uh, the mid-century in the U.S. in a way that has really helped me understand where we are today. Yeah, his book about Barry Goldwater uh, was um, just an important resource for me as I was uh, for our book project, um, just learning more about Goldwater and the movement that arose around him and uh, the the continuation there from Goldwater to Reagan is a really natural one uh, once you understand not only Reagan's infatuation with Goldwater's ideas, um, but you know also the 
the sort of the failure of Goldwater's uh, bid for president and the way that it led to a long-term movement to build organizations and institutions and power. And Reagan really represented the kind of coming out party uh, for those efforts. Well, Reaganland comes in at just over 1,100 pages, Jack, which means that we have a lot to discuss. We do, and uh, I will let you lead the way, Jennifer. If you're a regular listener, then you know that I am not only a voracious reader, but that I often get very excited about a book that seemingly has little to do with education. And then I invite the author of said book onto the show to discuss a topic they really don't know much about. Well, with Rick Perlstein, something very different happened. In preparation for our interview, he looked at his latest book, Reaganland, with fresh eyes, and he saw something he'd never noticed before— Reagan was obsessed with public education, and he wasn't alone. But it's not just this book. I mean, Ronald Reagan really starts his political career in California uh, as a crusader against what's going on at, you know, the University of California, Berkeley. And it's very much, even though we're not talking about K-12 education, the idea that this public institution uh, was not serving the public, but was serving this kind of group of -of out-of-touch elites was absolutely central to his attack on Berkeley as a place that was coddling student protesters. And uh, one of the very first things he did as governor was punish the University of California system by instituting tuition for the first time. That was a very much an undergirding his entire ideology. You know, he, he used to say that if obviously you don't have the best people working in the public sector, because if, if they were the best people, they would be hired away by the private sector for more money, you know, as if, you know, kind of market values are the only values, right? And of course, public education is our biggest, most important, most profound institution that runs according to values other than, you know, the profit motive and supply and demand. So of course, Ronald Reagan is going to, you know, take aim at that. Once Reagan was out of the California governor's office and cultivating the national audience that would power him into the White House, tirades against public schools were central to his message. After he's governor, you know, makes a living giving these daily radio addresses, right? And education was one of his biggest topics. I mean, one of the things that stopped me cold was when he criticized the National Education Association, the teachers union, of course, for um, proposing uh, national curriculum standards. And he said that they're following a playbook laid down by Adolf Hitler, right? So some of his strangest, most impassioned extremist rhetoric involved education. Subtitle of Pearlstein's new book is America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. And to understand why public education ends up being such a key part of this story, we need some context about what else was going on. I asked Rick Pearlstein to distill the history to which he's devoted thousands of pages to, say, a minute and a half. 
by the middle of the 1970s, that national greatness, that moral grandeur, that success in just about every field of endeavor suddenly feels to be kind of draining away. And the signposts for that are, you know, America losing its first war in Vietnam and not only losing the war, but losing its moral authority to basically make the argument that America has the world's best interest at heart, because obviously it's a very cruel, imperialist kind of war. And then there's Watergate, right? Americans can't anymore trust their presidents. Richard Nixon is kind of revealing himself as no better than a mafia don. And then there's, you know, the economic part of it. In 1972-73 is when wages for working class people start to stagnate. Uh, in 1973-74 is the first oil crisis and the first trade deficit America ever has since the 1870s or 80s, I think, comes in 1971. The idea that America is the most prosperous country in which the prosperity is widely shared is draining away. So that's the context for all sorts of discontents on the ground all over the place that really get weaponized. Key for the purposes of this podcast is that the grassroots populist anger that was breaking out all over the country, well, a lot of it was focused on education. Pearlstein chronicles a rising rage over things like court-ordered busing in the North. As he argues, the issues were often highly localized, but a rising generation of new conservative activists on what he calls the new right was quickly figuring out how to turn local anger into a national political force. These guys, these new right guys in the 70s, they look for the kind of grassroots populist anger breaking out all over the country on all sorts of different issues. One of the examples is, you know, parents who are frustrated that federal judges are ordering the integration of schools in the North. Another one that's happening at the exact same time is the Kanawha County, West Virginia textbook wars. The public schools, uh, the school board, are basically people from who are kind of cosmopolitan liberals who live in Charleston, the city in West Virginia. And they adopt a suite of textbooks that, you know, basically ask kids to think critically about society, you know, that include passages from African-American writers like James Baldwin that ask them to compare the myths in the Bible to Greek myth, thus suggesting that the Bible is not divinely inspired, but just one more belief system. And they're so enraged by this that they protest. They start a grassroots protest movement as passionate as the one in South Boston that ends up with the school board being dynamited. Or had the pleasure of reading one of Pearlstein's histories. Well, you're missing out. He brings the day-by-day rhythm of the 70s to life in Reaganland. And what quickly becomes apparent is that all these battles over schools and what they taught and who got to decide were breaking out everywhere. And Pearlstein says that's because they were about something bigger. And the reason the schools are such a powerful vessel for this uh, new right crusade is that the schools seem to be a challenge to the family, to the patriarchal family, to the nuclear family, and the church as institutions inculcating children in a set of values, in a morality. And after the 1960s, when so many revolutions occur in the very organization of society. In the 1970s, those revolutions begin working their way into the mainstream of society, you know, in the educational university colleges, in curricula. And schools are the bloody crossroads in the 1970s culture war. 
take the explosive issue of government regulation of private schools. In Concord, New Hampshire, there was yet another flare-up when city officials said that a building being used by a fundamentalist Baptist preacher for a school wasn't up to code. And the preacher says, this is my church. You have no right to regulate my church. The First Amendment says no interference with the state and church. So he begins a public protest that gets preachers from all over the country rallying in town square in Concord and threatening to come back in the thousands and willing to go to jail and even die, you know, to keep Caesar from regulating their schools. And you see more and more of these people protesting against the state, creating textbook standards, people protesting compulsory attendance, people protesting that teachers need to be accredited, right? So they're kind of creating this parallel, non-civic kind of education system. But it was when the IRS rolled out stricter regulations for private schools started by churches that things really boiled over. It was the culmination of a years-long battle by the government to rein in the segregation academies that sprang up all across the South in the wake of Brown v. Board. But the IRS rules also took aim at church schools, which had exploded in numbers since 1962 when the Supreme Court outlawed prayer in schools. The rubber hits the road when the commissioner of the IRS under Jimmy Carter says, look, a lot of these schools are not following the, the Brown versus Board of Education. They're segregated. They've, they've, been, they've been basically do, working on this to try and enforce Supreme Court decisions that have been coming down since the early 1970s. The, the, the IRS comes up with progressively more stringent and specific uh, regulations about how schools can certify that they're not segregating. Ultimately, in 1978, the rules that are handed down are sufficiently stringent that a lot of schools don't think that they can follow them, even if they have no intent of, you know, being segregated. And it becomes this national sensation. One of the most dramatic scenes in my book is there, the IRS holds hearings on these, these new rules and Christians come from all over the country as far away, literally as from Alaska. And one by one, they line up at this microphone and say that they're willing to go to jail or die in order to keep the government out of their schools. This battle over federal tax exemptions for private schools was such a big deal, but I'd barely heard of it. And even as I was reading Rick's book, I had to keep going back to try to understand, you know, what what was it that they were fighting about? So I think we're going to need a little assistance from you to help us understand not just why this was important, but why this issue is still relevant today. Yeah, I think what's important to know here, Jennifer, is that this was a really big deal in the late 1970s and early 1980s. And most people today don't really remember it. Uh, In fact, the question of tax-exempt status is not really on anyone's radar, and it absolutely should be, because if private schools weren't tax-exempt, then, you know, that's, that's... 20 to 30% of their revenue just gone instantly. And in fact, it could be a lot more. Um, uh, If we think about the valuations of the land that they sit on, for instance, or their buildings, uh, if they had to pay taxes, annual taxes on those, um, it could just be prohibitively expensive to run a private school. And back in the 1970s, it was actually a legal strategy by... Um, black families and um, black advocacy organizations uh, to attack 
the tax-exempt status of discriminatory private schools, right? These segregation academies that had been set up across the South in response to Brown and the second Brown ruling in 1955. Um, So there was a a court case in 1970 uh, where black families won an injunction in Mississippi. And throughout the 70s, there was an effort to really expand on this and to take away the tax-exempt status of these schools. And eventually the IRS in the Carter administration moved to create tougher rules. Um, you know, you, you couldn't just sign a document and say, no, 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 we don't discriminate against anybody. And by the way, there were schools that refused to sign that document. Um, so instead they were saying, we're, we're actually going to enforce the law here. And Reagan came out um, and, you know, in a very Reagan way, just framed this as bureaucrats run amok. Um, and eventually what we see is that, uh, you know, we are, here we are 40 years later, and this question still lives with us, right? Which schools uh, can be tax-exempt? Remember that tax-exempt status is akin to being a public charity, right? Is it a public good to have some schools that are pursuing um, not only, you know, potentially discriminative admissions policies, uh, but discriminative teaching, um, right? Teaching particular kinds of curricula that, um, you know, either erase particular populations or um, frame them as wicked and evil, uh, as we've talked about with regard to um, LGBT people uh, in some curricula in previous episodes. Um, so I think the unresolved nature of this question uh, is, is really important, and it's one that I think we should all be paying attention to. To Rick Perlstein, part of what makes Reaganland such compelling reading is that you see so many of the forces that still shape our politics today starting to emerge. For example, that resentment among religious groups over what they saw as an out-of-control culture, well, it powered all those school protests and gave rise to a major political movement. This finds its institutional expression by 1979 when Jerry Falwell, the very popular televangelist who that same year is quoted in a sermon saying he would love to see the day when when there are no public schools, that the schools can be returned back to Christianity. He starts the moral majority. And the moral majority is a political lobby. It turns churches into precinct organizations. It's like kind of the equivalent of the right of unions on the left. And again, the galvanizing institution for all this stuff is the school. And the school has such profound emotional power because that's where the child leaves the home. Also the moment when a kind of free market fundamentalism begins to take hold. Its chief spokesman was a libertarian economist named Milton Friedman. As Perlstein points out, Friedman had been making his market pitch for decades and was pretty much dismissed as a kook. But things were changing. You know, the reason his ideas suddenly seem more respectable is that the Keynesian way of explaining economics just doesn't seem to work anymore. You know, we now know that there was this was kind of like a temporary blip and things kind of returned to the status quo ante after these, you know, kinks worked their way out of the system. But, you know, not before a lot of economic pain was caused by, you know, Milton Friedman style economic policies. But he was, you know, basically had this evangelical faith in the free market's magical power to solve all sorts of 
problems when it came to coordinating every kind of institution. And at the center of his thinking was also education. He was the guy, as you write in your book, you know, that came up with the idea of, you know, educational vouchers, that the government should just hand people money and they can pay for tuitions. And then the schools that are best will outcompete the schools that aren't the best and will reach this equilibrium in which we have the best possible education system. Many things I learned reading Reaganland is that the free market fundamentalism espoused by Milton Friedman and others overlapped in all sorts of weird ways with the demands of the emerging moral majority, two movements that I'd always thought were separate. The Christian right part uh, actually is kind of related to this because a lot of these preachers were also libertarian. Jerry Falwell talked about Milton Friedman in, in his 1980 book, Listen America. There was one of the, the most extreme theolo- theologians of the Christian right was this guy named Dr. R.J. Rushduni. He was a Christian reconstructionist. And what that meant was he believed that America's civil law should be guided by Old Testament biblical law, which includes, you know, things like stoning for homosexuals. And he, but he was very influential because he considered schools to be sort of these sort of churches of the secular state, right? He said that he, he, he wrote a book called The Messianic Character of Public Education. And his son-in-law, Gary North, who was basically the keeper of his flame, was a libertarian economist who, who worshipped Friedrich Hayek and probably thought that Milton Friedman was a little too left-wing for his taste. So these are not mutually exclusive categories. When Rick describes Milton Friedman as a kind of star of the 1970s, he's not exaggerating. One of the weirdest cultural events of this time period was Milton Friedman's TV show that aired on PBS. And you were kind enough to pick out an excerpt for us to listen to. The system is not working. And it is not working because it lacks a vital ingredient. The experts mean well. But a centralized system cannot possibly have that degree of personal concern for each individual child that we have as parents. The centralization produces deadening uniformity. It destroys the experimentation that is a fundamental source of progress. What we need to do is to enable parents, by vouchers or other means, to have more say about the school which their child goes to a public school or a private school, whichever meets the need of the child best. That will inevitably give them also more say about what their children are taught and how they are taught. Market competition is the surest way to improve the quality and promote innovation in education as in every other field. sound you heard at the end, by the way, was Milton Friedman walking off through the New Hampshire snow away from a little red schoolhouse. Jack, you watched a bunch of these shows, so thank you for that. And what did the experience teach you? I think what's amazing about this is how bad it is. It's it's bad to look at. It's bad to listen to. Um, it, it's just, it is a marvel. Uh, you know, it speaks in part to the fact that people didn't have that many choices in terms of the channels that they were watching. You mean uh, they weren't free to choose. In irony, right, exactly, uh, given the title of the series. Um, But also, you know, how sort of weak the argumentation here is. It actually speaks to how far 
um, the privatizers, right, this libertarian fringe of the um, conservative movement to unmake public education, how far they've come uh, in the past 40 years, that the kinds of arguments that Friedman uh, is making are just really weak. And he points, for instance, to a very wealthy suburban Massachusetts school district, Weston. And he says that the reason the Weston schools are good is that um, parents are more involved and have more choice, have more control. And that's, that's just simply wrong. It was wrong then and it's wrong now, right? The Weston schools serve a very affluent, uh, white, English-speaking population where most parents are, uh, you know, college graduates. That's a huge advantage in terms of looking like you're doing a good job as a school. But then also those schools, uh, particularly at the time, right, this is before a shift in um, how schools in Massachusetts were funded, uh, had way more money than the Boston school that he compares to Weston High School, um, where he says, and this is a terrible school because the bureaucrats run it, right? It's like, well, no, it, it looks like a terrible school, first of all, because um, you're not giving them a fair shake. Uh, you're just you know, basically looking at the fact that these kids are poor uh, and racially marginalized. Um, but it also had way less money. Um, and that kind of argument it's really amazing to see that that was compelling to people at the time. Um, that, you know, I think that it was new enough and different enough that people weren't prepared to argue back against it. Um, and that it really motivated an entire generation to start talking about choice, that choice was suddenly the problem with the schools, not racial segregation, not inequitable funding, um, you know, not a lack of support for teachers as professionals, right? Choice captured uh, the moment for, you know, a subset of the population, um, a particularly conservative subset. But, you know, one of the things Friedman does is he gets parents to talk about how much they wish they could choose. And I think that's the power that we see here uh, when we watch this is, um, you know, we live in a society in which um, we are constantly told that the way that we can express our freedom is through the market, through our ability to choose, right? That um, we may be poor, but we can take the dollars we have to the supermarket and buy any cereal we want. And when we apply that logic to education, of course, uh, it can be alluring to think, that the solution to our problems is simply to apply the choice we have in other domains uh, to, to public education, to how our kids are schooled. Um, when in fact, uh, I think we actually lacked then and lack now uh, the vocabulary and the models for talking about you know, what actually would best strengthen our public schools, um, that the weaknesses we see are actually weaknesses in our society, right? That we are fragmented, um, that we, you know, do not broadly believe in um, social welfare, uh, that, you know, we for uh, our entire history um, have been a racist and classist society, right? That all of that, of course, affects our schools. Uh, and the idea that choice would solve those problems is a pipe dream. Um, but we can see it was attractive then and it's attractive now.
Now, back in Rangenland, another development is underway, which will feel very familiar to you. This is also the moment when business leaders, whom Pearlstein refers to as boardroom Jacobins, begin their crusade against unions and government regulation. And they also decide that the youth need to be re-educated. So the boardroom Jacobins is my name for these kind of corporate executives who in the previous generation when America had this kind of easy prosperity had gone along with big government. They, they didn't really lobby that much against government regulations. They didn't fight against unions, right, because everything was going so well. But then after, you know, corporate profits start falling, they begin to act like the Jacobins in the French Revolution and start organizing against government, you know, and organizing, you know, basically to destroy liberalism. And one of the ways they, they do this, and one of the key figures of this is a guy named William Simon, who was a treasury secretary under uh, Gerald Ford. Him and William Crystal, the, the, the neoconservative editor, raised hundreds of millions of dollars from corporations to create free market educational materials for, for high school classrooms, ads on subways and buses, you know, like uh, extolling the, the virtues of the free market. And, you know, we saw the same thing uh, in the 1950s. You saw, you know, like tens of millions of dollars being spent by the Advertising Council to do the same thing. But it wasn't successful then because, you know, liberalism had just much stronger kind of institutional purchase. But in the late 1970s, it's, it's very successful. And, you know, I write about how college professors who are liberal are absolutely agog at how many kids suddenly want to major in business, you know, and how political apathy is rampant. But, you know, partying is up, you know, 80%. That was Rick Perlstein, author of Reagan Land, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. He's also the author of Nixon Land and The Invisible Bridge, all indispensable reading if you want to understand how conservatism took over American politics. And Jack and I will be right back to discuss the long reach of Milton Friedman and to reveal the subject of this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon subscribers. Here's a hint. Jack is proposing a do-over for schools and students when this pandemic finally ends. So, Jack, one of the challenges of immersing oneself in a book like Reagan Land, which, you know, tops out at a thousand plus pages, is that there are, I am now so full of facts and tidbits. You're like Wikipedia. I really You're am. You're Jenniferpedia. And I don't have an outlet <laughs> except for one person. Yes. Yeah, right. It was going to say you do have an outlet. You're, you're texting me your your trivia uh, as you accumulate it. So, so now I also possess the trivia. Okay, so here goes. So when when Milton Friedman won the Nobel Prize in Economics in 1976, he was not at home in Chicago. He was off somewhere doing very important work. Do you know what he was doing? I think I do, but can I just offer a an annoying corrective that oh. there isn't <laughs> there isn't really a Nobel Prize in Economics that it's it's a prize in memory of Alfred Nobel that is actually named after the Central Bank of Sweden. So uh, let's 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 not give him a Nobel Prize. Let's give him the Bank of Sweden Prize instead. Um, I don't know the answer, but I have a guess, and I'm guessing it's Chile. 
Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to my life. Oh, no, did I get it? No, no you did not. No. You weren't even oh. close. No, he was. What? In, I wasn't even close. No. Okay. No, right. he was in Michigan going Which door to door. Which is like Chile. It's going, the Chile of the United States. He was in Michigan going door to door campaigning in favor of an incredibly strict cap on property taxes, right? To basically <laughs> like kneecap the state's ability to provide public <laughs> services. And this was, the, he was doing the Lord's work. I I was confusing Chile with Chile, uh, and that's okay, going door to door in Michigan is is a, a, a brisk enterprise. Um, it, well, as a California native, I can tell you um, that you know we have our own knee capping limit on property tax increases, and that uh, long term California residents will tell you that once upon a time we had uh, all the money we needed to fund public education in the state and now suddenly we do not because uh, of these kinds of uh, efforts. So um, yeah, I mean the the legacy of Milton Friedman lives on in so many ways uh, and you know the fact that um, we are still talking about him today uh, is you know a sign that you know when when uh, the great economists of the 20th century uh, are forgotten, we will still be unmaking the mess that Milton Friedman made. Well, Jack, obviously you were very wrong when you answered Chile instead of Michigan, but yet <laughs> not, not very wrong. You weren't on. you weren't completely off the mark or off the map. So I want you there. This is really relevant um, up to the present day. So I want you to just tell us what you were thinking about. Yeah, right. So uh, I, I had the year wrong. Um, so while you were making fun of me, I just let my fingers do the walking on the internet. It was 1981 um, that Chile, based on Milton Friedman's ideas, introduced a universal school voucher, um, which you know transformed the nature uh, of education and educational opportunity in that country. Um, you know the the percentage of students who were enrolled in Chilean public schools declined from something like 80% to 50%, just a, a massive outflow of students. And this was part of a broader effort by uh, Chicago-trained economists or University of Chicago-trained economists to remake um, Chile, uh, to remake its economy, but really its social fabric. And that um, you know, in the same way that we are trying to unmake Milton Friedman's mess in the United States um, 50, 40 years later, uh, Chile is doing the same. And actually, uh, you know, for the past year, students have been leading the effort, um, but it's been, you know, hundreds of thousands of Chileans in the streets protesting what they see uh, as, you know, in the, the words of Bernie Sanders, a, a rigged system, uh, a rigged economy, um, a broken system uh, that is tilted towards the most advantaged. And, uh, you know, in some ways I see this as a, a kind of harbinger for, um, you know, the same sorts of things here in the U.S., right, that we're kind of at an inflection point right now where either... Uh, we support public education, we double down on the public nature of public education, or um, you know, we continue on the route that we're presently on, uh, which you know, continues to accelerate towards the unmaking of that system, uh, and we end up with people in the streets. Um, 
And and maybe and maybe that's the best possible outcome, uh, but it certainly isn't one that instills a, a lot of um, uh, good cheer at this time of year. Well, as part of my perpetual reading group of one, I've been reading this fascinating paper by Nancy McLean. She's the author of Democracy in Chains, and we had her on the pod several years ago. And she was recounting um, another paper written by economist Tyler Cowen, who's at George Mason, and he's kind of a, a leading voice of the libertarian cause. And he was basically acknowledging that you know their big challenge is that because their ideas are so unpopular, they can't really. It's really hard to get people to go along with them. <laughs> Right. And so the the countries that they define as free, meaning free in terms of, you know, property and, and tilted in favor of what they would call liberty, also tend to be the most authoritarian. And I thought, what a what a fascinating admission, because you really see that with with education, that that when it comes to asking people to give up public education, it's not a popular cause. Yeah, and you know, as you always point out, Jennifer, um, it's not a popular cause with uh, people on the left or people on the right, right, if we're talking about ordinary people. Uh, and that's something important to keep in mind here. Well, Jack, I really appreciate all of your assistance with this episode, especially your hard work in the AV department. I'm just going to pretend that I didn't hear that tone, Jennifer. That's fine. And I understand that you have an important <laughs> announcement for us. Sure, I'll do it. Um, okay, it actually is really exciting. This is year three of our graduate student research contest, and um, if people are unfamiliar with it, they should go back into the archive. Um, the specific episodes that they could listen to with previous winners and runners-up are episode 69, episode 75, episode 95, and episode 96. Um so, you know, we have had now, I think, five winners and runners up because we had co runners up uh, last year. Um, and those have been some of my favorite episodes. Uh, so, if you are a graduate student and your work uh, involves education, then we want to know uh, what you're up to. And if you think that you have the stuff for an episode of Have You Heard, then we want you to apply to our graduate student research contest. Um, it's a really easy application. All you need to do is send just a brief, like 200, 300 word description of your research. And just in like two sentences, make the case for why you think it belongs in the podcast. Uh, you know, we want to know some other stuff too, like, you know, what your program is and uh, where you're in school, but that's just largely for our own interest. And uh, the deadline for applications is January 31st of 2021. And uh, the winner will appear on a spring 2021 episode. And all the information you need is at haveyouheardblog.com. It's right up on the front page. And we will be tweeting wildly about it as always. But you should really apply. Um, it's it, Those really have turned out to be such cool episodes. And what amazes me is how much I learn 
working on them. It's just, it's, they're, they're really exciting. So, so please consider applying. And of course, it's my job to try to lure people to the paywall as I always do. We rely on our listeners to support us. We don't accept any kind of paid advertising. Instead, we rely on Patreon and many of our, our listeners now chip in a couple of dollars a month to help keep the show going and pay our outstanding producer. And we've actually got a special offer, limited time offer, that if you go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and uh, join at the $10 a month rate, you'll get a free copy of our hot off the presses new book, A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door. What an amazing offer. <laughs> well, you know, it's not really free, right? Because you're, you're paying in a different way. But, uh, but those of you who uh, want to support the show without opening your wallets, purses, and pocketbooks. Uh, there are lots of ways to do so. Uh, as regular listeners know, my uh, preferred is if you tell people about the show. I just believe without evidence that if you tell your friends, colleagues, and family members that you're listening to this great podcast about education, um, that they'll start listening too. Uh, and our little movement will grow. Uh, but of course, there are other things you can do. You can go on wherever you get your podcasts and throw us some stars and a positive review. That helps people find the show. Um, you can tweet about the show. And, and we also just love when you, know, you tweet at us, uh, either your reactions to the show uh, or ideas. We've gotten some great ideas for episodes from listeners. And the Twitter handle is at HaveYouHeardPod. And if you do want to hang around and join us in the weeds, that's the special area we do for our Patreon subscribers where Jack and I hold forth in some less prepared way on a topic that is of <laughs> deep interest to at least one of us. Uh, uh -huh. I would love it if you did that. And Jack, what is our topic for today? I think that we should test out in the safe space that is in the weeds uh, the idea I floated on Twitter the other day of a do-over of, um, you know, as the default, just sending all kids back to the grade they were in when the pandemic started. Um, and man, some people were really mad about that, which, you know, that's to me, that's always the sign of an idea worth um, thinking through a little bit, right? That it's, it's not something that everybody's just going to go along with. Um, and so there's, there's clearly something there. So let's, let's poke around uh, that idea a little bit. And then if it works, maybe we'll do an episode. And if it doesn't, then, you know, only our subscribers have heard us talk about it. You are on, sir. For everybody else, <laughs> we'll be back in two weeks. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. <laughs>